Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 141 with John Jarbo. John is a director, singer, writer, historian, and host serving you revolution, history, queer community making, and a whole lot of glitter. She is the founding artistic director of the Bearded Ladies Cabaret. Her most recent work is an original commission called Rose, You Are Who You Eat for the Guggenheim's Works and Process series. You can learn more about her creative work at www.beardedladiescabaret.com. The Theatrical Mustang podcast features interviews with unbridled talent and cultural trailblazers across the country. This reboot is distributed by American Theatre. Episodes 1 through 138 are archived at theatricalmustang.podbean.com. And now, enjoy episode 141 with John Jarvis. I'm so pleased to welcome to the podcast, Philadelphia powerhouse of theater, John Jarbo. Welcome! Thank you so much, Wizik. I'm so honored to be on this podcast with you. I'm a fan of you and your work. Oh, I'm such a fan of you as well. I remember we had this, to me, one of the best weekends of my life was being able to spend time with you in Philadelphia. And we saw Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleek Street. We did. And that was one of my favorite things ever. And then a bunch of queer artists, you cooked for us at at your home. And that was just one of the most delicious things ever in terms of my just existence as a human, but especially as a a queer non-binary human. But we're going to talk about Bearded Ladies Cabaret later. First of all, I want to talk about this recent run in three different locations of your newest piece, Rose, You Are Who You Eat, a concert experience exploring gender and queer ancestry through the metaphor of cannibalism. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Tell me more. Where did this piece come from? And yes, let's dive into the origin story. I mean, it is. Yeah, I think that's an appropriate uh, that's an appropriate introduction because it is an origin story and it really comes from the womb. I started to dream up the project after 2018. I was sitting with my aunt in Western Michigan, I was eating ice cream and I had just started using she, her pronouns. I've been on a gender journey. And (laughs) she was processing that from like a very well-meaning liberal progressive lens and saying, you know, you had a twin in the womb, John, you ate her. That's why you are the way you are. And she was, you know, (laughs) trying to be generous and trying to make sense of what didn't make sense to her. And I didn't know that I had a twin in the womb. I knew that if I were assigned female at birth, I would have been called Rose, but I didn't know that I had that Rose existed or that I ate her. (laughs) And what I say in the show is that it's a lot to digest. It left me with a weird aftertaste. And, um, (laughs) and, and so I, I, I had a whole personal moment around that revelation thinking about, Oh, was there, was, did I actually have a twin and confirming that with my mother and my family. And then during the early bit of the pandemic, I was asked by works in process at the Guggenheim to create a video. And so I wrote a song called Rose, a true story, uh, which Mm -hmm. begins. I've always been a healthy eater. So healthy. I ate you. 
Yes, I ate you, Rose. Your unformed toes, your fetal feet, and your tiny bones. Bones. <laughs> um, so this dark cannibal wow. song about eating eating my twin Rose in the womb and about instead of rejecting the well-meaning but problematic uh, response of my aunt, embracing it as the myth of who I am and saying, yes, I am a gender cannibal. What does that mean? What does it mean that I ate my twin Rose and now later on in life, Rose is eating me from the inside out is kind of how I felt. Things are shedding and I am becoming more of who I am. And I, and I am John and I am Rose and I'm, and Rose is John and John is Rose. And, and sometimes, you know, <laughs> you know, so that's Absolutely. what the piece is. That's what the piece is about. Telling that story, telling the myth, the legend of John and Rose, and also seeking acceptance from specifically mother. It's a story of self-acceptance and, and the piece goes through kind of growing up in the Midwest, Catholic shame, <laughs> Catholic shame. I recreate the end of the movie Psycho, which is very trans problematic, which was my favorite film when I was a kid, was watching Norman Bates over and over again. It's one of the first or the first films where they use the word, and this is a trigger word, I will say, they use the word transvestite in that movie. And they talk about diagnosing Norman, like what is Norman's issue? (laughs) Um, And I really identified with Norman. And so I recreate a whole section of that. And then it ends with this ritual of acceptance where I cast the audience as my mother. And it's a sing-along. It's like Sound of Music sing-along. But when I sing I, you sing you. And when I sing you, you sing I. And so we play a little game. I'll go I, and you sing you, you, I, you love me, I'm worthy. I trick the audience into or welcome the audience into creating a fantasy of acceptance. You know, those moments when you imagine that that someone that you love says exactly what you wanted them to say when you, when you say who you are, imagining like that someone believes you. And so that's what that piece is about. And it's written in collaboration with four amazing genderful composers, Daniel de Jesus, Emily Bate, Pax Ressler, and B. Steadwell. So each song is written by a different composer. Some composers have done two. My idea was to take a story that's very personal and idiosyncratic and to see what it would be like prismed through many different voices. So there's a Joni Mitchell-esque song. There's a kind of, I know Marilyn Manson is canceled, but there's a sort of Marilyn Manson-esque like shame number. There's an 80s pop ballad um, and there's the sound of music. So it's very, it's, it's like seeing Rose in many different hats, seeing Rose in many different styles. Um, and then there's also a big film element too, because works in process that the Guggen have decided first, they were like, make films because it's digital. And then they were like, and they're so wonderful. They were like, now also make a concert because people are coming back into, into the theater. So um, I have a bunch of films and I have this concert that we're still developing and working on. That's incredible. I mean, I went through I went through a roller coaster of emotions with you <laughs> describing it. And that's that's not even, you know, me being there. I've seen some of the photos from this concert version. Can you talk about how you create visuals and then we'll sort of go on to your process as a collaborator and writer and, and where it's going next? Yeah, I like to think very 360 about making theater. I think this relates to some of the training I had and viewpoints. And also I, I got to intersect with Moises Kaufman and moment work. Sure. Um, yeah. And I really like the way that he talks about creating thinking in moments. One of the first images that I had for Rose was that I was sitting with my back to the audience in a hockey jersey that said Jarbo on it. And I was eating chicken out of a, a KFC bucket, but instead of a KFC logo, it has the image, it has a rose on it. And I'm eating like big chunks of chicken 
and watching family photos. Um, and so that's the first thing. And then I would stand up and you would realize that the hawk was not just a jersey, but it was a, a huge dress. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> and so that's that's the first moment. That's the first image yeah. that I had when I was writing. So I wrote that down first. So I, I, I tend to write as much visually as I write textually. I also write a lot on my feet and create a lot on my feet. So I'm creating with props, with costumes, with images. And I have an amazing team. So Christopher Ash is an incredible filmmaker, video designer, projection designer that has been a collaborator on the project with me from the beginning, translating my ideas and Rose's story into film. And I just have an amazing costume designer, Rebecca Kanak, who I've been working with for years as well. It's all about collaboration um, and having an amazing team. And I have an amazing group of collaborators that I've built up over the years. But I want theater to be, I want theater to, to use all that it has in front of it. I want it to use all of its resources. I, I really just like going to a play that I'm like, that's really a novel, you know, or that would be right. better as a novel or going to a film and feeling, ah, I'd rather see that on stage or I'd rather read that as a book. I, I love it when a form uses what what's at its disposal really fully and, and has thought about why it's theater. Why is this a live experience? And for me in Rose, that's about sing-along. It's about the, this experience of having a genderful audience surround me and hold up my story the way I want it to be held up. And for me to hold up their stories as well and to do that together in live space is just so different than it is digitally. And so the digital content for Rose, and there's a lot of it that hasn't been released yet, is all made very differently. It's like a music video or an art film. So I'm trying to, as I work in different forms, really address the form. Can we dig into intended audience and how you craft your work for different audiences and, and who this show is for? I always, when I'm making work, it's never about one audience group. It's often about putting people on dates. That's how I think about artistic curation as well, because I do a lot of curating of cabaret series and I love the power of an introduction. Uh, I learned from one of my mentors, Chris Bartlett. Um, who runs the William Way Center for LGBTQ folks in Philadelphia. I think you've met Chris. Um, yes, yeah. I learned that it's more powerful for you to introduce two people to each other than for you to meet a new person, for you to create these networks. So I think about that a lot. And the groups that I'm interested in intersecting in rows, the people I've made the piece for are trans folks and moms. And I, and I can say queer folks and moms, but also specifically trans folks and moms. I'm very interested also in, in younger trans folks. And young can, can be divorced from age a bit because you right. could also think about like, I feel like a young trans person. <laughs> And so that it doesn't necessarily need to be confined to what we think of as a teen, but it could be just people in transition, people changing, embracing change, and moms, people that identify as moms. That's who I'm making the piece for. And other people are definitely welcome. I've gotten the opportunity to share this a couple times. We did a version of it at the Guggenheim in New York in the basement theater. It's a really, it's like a 260 seat house. It's very Frank Lloyd wrong. Like <laughs> it's, it's the design is so strange but it was so delightful it's like being in a submarine um or a womb actually um mm. uh so we performed it once there in march for a lovely crowd and then shared it in dc with cultural dc for two performances and my experience with this piece more so than anything i've ever done is that people are coming up to me and saying i really like that moment in your piece and when i was five blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> you know like th their stories are coming out and i'm getting this opportunity to hear so many gender journeys, so many stories about motherhood in a response to the piece. And that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm making it for is to kind of start that conversation.
as this piece continues on, where ideally, where's where's it going? What what happens next with this piece? I'm so glad you asked what happens next with Rose because that is my biggest goal right now is to share this with more people. I would love to do, we're figuring out how to do a run in Philadelphia, which is where I make most of my work, a longer run. We did a little workshop performance before we went up to New York. And I'm interested in taking it to LGBTQ centers, to universities. I'm interested in really touring it around and sharing it as as widely as I can. I think I have a special love of of all the little gender cannibals in um in the Midwest, to be honest, and sharing it with those oh, folks would yes, be really lovely. Please. Yeah. I'd really like to take it there to my where I was born in Michigan and throughout the Midwest. So that's I'm just manifesting that in the world. I'm hoping that that will happen for Rose. I'm always thinking about accessibility and and also what would it be like to film it and just make it available free online for folks? But again, we run into the question of what form does it need to take to be effective in that medium? And so that's one of the things that the team is thinking about because we have all this beautiful video content that I've made with Christopher Ash and our and the director, Mary Twanaman. This question was sort of emerging for me as, as you're talking about how deeply personal this story is. How do you take care of yourself when you're sharing so much of yourself with people? Is the act of sharing in itself a bit of self-care or are there other rituals that you perform to you know, keep your heart and persons healthy. I cannot tell you how meaningful it is and how overwhelming it is to have a crowd of 250 people playing your mother and telling you that they love you, that you are worthy, that they will change for you, that they forgive you. Not that we need forgiveness, but for me and as a, as a Catholic, I'd love to say that I'm a lapsed Catholic, but some part of that just never lapses, does it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I guess I really love the robes, the gowns. I can't tell you how meaningful it is to hear an audience of 250 people play your mother and tell you that they love you. It feels so filling and so meaningful to have that exchange and to, to sing along with people. I am generally pretty adverse to confessional theater. I even say in the piece, I'm like, ah, it's a little cliche. I know like coming out story, you know, like mom, I'm a cannibal. I mean, we've all been there. We've all done that, you know, <laughs> but so, so I'm trying to also make fun of myself and to queer the queer, <laughs> to queer the coming out story a bit, um, to make it stranger. I think my big question with this piece was, what would it be like to give your gender a room? What would it be like to give your gender a whole evening and to and to not feel like we have to be boxed into existing labels necessarily, though I love I, like give me the labels, give me the label machine, but also what it would what would it mean to embrace your full self in all of its weirdness? And all of its yes, I love Norman Bates. That's so problematic. I'm I'm a I'm a trans person who loves Norman Bates and loves Psycho. And so, what does it mean to to put all of your weirdness on stage? That was the prompt for the project, and continues to be the prompt for the project as I explore and grow the piece. I have a good team that is taking care of me. The director M.K. Twanaman is stunning and a longtime collaborator, and we built it slowly and carefully in conversation with an audience. Actually, my concern was how to take care of an audience through that, and it was the best process I've ever had because we did these workshop performances in Philly, and we gave the audience hot chocolate after everything and like a little survey to fill out, feeding people, you know, giving people drinks. It just helps. And the, the conversation around how to couch some of the idiosyncratic material that could possibly be triggering for the intended audience was really, really 
you know, what do you have to say before you deliver some of the text from Psycho that allows people to say, okay, I know I'm in good hands here. So I was actually more concerned about how to care for, for the audience because I've lived through my childhood. I, I know what it was like, you right. know, I'm interested in activating people's own childhoods and their, their dreams and their memories, but I don't want to do so in a way that is not thoughtful or, or caring. And that's something I, I care about in all of my work. How do you do work that is vulnerable and risky and also create architecture for the audience to manage their own experience? And I'm not talking about like content warning. I love a content warning, but how, how can we be creative and how can the content warning be built into the foundational material of the piece? That's where I was thinking about in terms of care. It's less about how do I care for myself, but also how do I care for the audience as I take them through this journey, uh, which is all true and all myth. I wrote a piece about Drag Race alums on American stages for American theater. And I think it was Jenny Coons said mm. that queer theater artists and artists who do drag specifically are uniquely qualified to take care of an audience when she co-directed Head Over Heels at the Pasadena Playhouse, that's what they were looking for. Folks from all sorts of queer performance experience. And so as we transition into talking about the Bearded Ladies Cabaret and that origin story, what is it about, I think that that really resonated with me and I would love your take about it. Like, what is it about LGBTQI plus theater artists that maybe have that unique awareness of how to project into the audience and really wanting to caretake for them a bit, perhaps more than others. I mean, not all of us do. <laughs> There's that. Not all of us do. And it's very interesting because one of the things that the Bearded Ladies does is in addition to kind of creating, you know, home-baked goods, original pieces, we think about the art of hosting a lot. Um, and yeah. during the pandemic, we built a beard mobile that we've been driving around Philadelphia doing performances on, allowing space for people that maybe didn't have the resource to have a stage that was pandemic safe to curate what happened in their neighborhood for themselves with our hosting and our energy and our band if they wanted it, which was a really amazing project that continues. And we also create this cabaret festival that will be coming back this fall called Late Night Snacks during the Fringe and Opera Festivals in, in Philadelphia in September. And when we have discussed that with a team of curators, a kind of intergenerational uh, team, and when I mean generational, I mean like performance generations, different genres too, intergenerational, intergenre, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a mess. Uh, I love it. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about what is the culture of care? What is the culture of triggering? I don't want to give away too much of my performance. There are different opinions. I think the reason that we're talking about it so much, whether or not we want to do it or we do it, the reason we're talking about it so much is because we are in the art of belonging, of creating belonging with one another. I think my friend Emily Bate, who's one of uh, a composer that I work with, a brilliant artist, talks about like, how do we belong to one another? And the spaces that we're in that are liminal spaces, they're not necessarily theaters. Sometimes they're a lobby or a bar. They are one of the things we call these spaces in the Bearded Ladies is uh, designated spaces, um, which are socially designated spaces, integrated for performance. Like I think of cabaret as reverse immersive theater in a way, like we, the audience yes. has the space, the audience owns the space and the performer comes on stage. And these are ideas that I work on a lot with um, one of my main collaborators, Sally Olive, who's a dramaturg. And we think about what makes a cabaret a cabaret. It is the space and the kind of performance. And because we are reverse immersive theater in cabaret and a lot of queer performance in nightlife, and because there is a more porous 
fourth wall. There's really no fourth wall. It's just a microphone that you're carrying. We have a higher responsibility and a higher probability that politeness won't get in the way of humanity. And I love that about it. That it's like performing in like an active organ system. You know, like we're like, we're like in a, it's an organism, it's moving, it's breathing. And I want to sit on your lap, but I also want to, as a performer, I want to know that you want me to sit on your lap. Even if you're like nervous about it, I want you to sign up for it. And so one of the things the beards do with consent, this is something that <laughs> a term that I started using in my cabaret series, Get Pegged, where I just say, if you don't want to be touched, if you came to a cabaret and don't want to be interacted with, you can just clutch your pearls. So let's all pretend you like that person and we practice it. I have them do it so that they've physically done it before. Um, and I say, if you don't have a pearl necklace, don't worry about it. I'll give you one later in the bathroom. You know, no problem. <laughs> And we now use the Clutcher Pearls, which is also a, a fun dig at class. All of our hosts use it in our cabaret spaces. It's so that. useful. It's so useful. And people use it. I now know when I'm walking through an audience, which people want to be interacted with and which people are like, oh, I'm not sure. Oh, no, sit on me. <laughs> you know, that's what I talk about when I'm thinking about like how we can use our creativity in the direction of consent, in the direction of creating spaces that are thoughtful and caring. And I think the reason she's long-winded today, Jarbo, is um, she's a talker. To answer your question, I think one of the reasons why we are, queer people are thinking about it are A, because we're, you know, we've all experienced a fair amount of damage and we're like sensitive to it, hopefully. And because we are in spaces where there is higher permission for people to be human. And ideally we're creating spaces where I think of cabaret as like a workshop and accountability. Like how can we all be accountable to one another in this space? How can we take care of one another? And it's totally a democracy. I just happen to have a, a microphone and, and high heels. <laughs> it's not a democracy. <laughs> it's, it, I am louder and I'm in charge. But um, uh, it's like American democracy. Anyway, uh, but I do think about that as a cabaret. How can we be accountable? How can we practice being human together? Be, be, being better humans. And queers are just better. <laughs> yes. Can you talk me through, like, if I were James Lipton... And this is our inside the actor's studio. What? <laughs> I'd have so many questions. <laughs> I, well, actually, one of my friends, one of my friends from high school, Kathleen Kylo, her job at the new school was giving people office supplies and setting up office supply orders. And that's one of my favorite things ever is that sometimes James Lipton would call her up and she'd be like, yes, absolutely. I'll get the note cards over to you. <laughs> oh, my Someone goodness. had that job. And I love that so oh. much that someone had that job. What would you say the greatest, I don't even want to say greatest hits, moments of profound resonance in this landscape that is the profound body of work that the Beards have put into the world? If someone's new to this canon of work, what would be the pieces that you would want to highlight for them? The Beards is a 12-year-old project that literally started in my living room in West Philadelphia because I was doing a lot of mediocre Shakespeare and mediocre musical theater. And I think myself and my collaborators, my friends were a little traumatized by some of those experiences. Like, we're just like uh, deeply annoyed. I should say, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I, I do think we're like, we thought this was our free space. We thought this was the space where we could feel seen and heard and felt, you know, and it's not, it's a carbon copy of a problematic, racist, patriarchal, heteronormative institution, but uses the language of family and pays you less 
it's really problematic. And I think my body knew that more than my words knew that. And I got an opportunity to do a cabaret. I didn't know what a cabaret was. So I said, yes, of course. And I started making work with a small group of singers, performers, musicians, and it felt really meaningful. And I think over the past 12 years, it snowballed a lot. And I think people respond to the combination of silliness, glitter, spectacle, and hard question. You know, we we, of, we often talk about our work as a poison cookie, which is a phrase that we've taken from Friedrich Hollander, a 1930s composer in Germany, uh, who said that cabaret is like a poison cookie, suggestively administered and hastily swallowed. It makes the placid blood boil and inspires the sluggish mind to think. That's probably me rewriting the quote a little bit, sure, the quotation sure. a little bit, but I think about our work like poison cookies or like Trojan horses where we welcome people in and they're not just poison for the audience. They're poison for ourselves too. We're like wondering how we are all complicit in something, in some idea. And how do we use James Bond as the cookie to like talk about the politics of James Bond or why we love James Bond and to talk about gender. So we put Judith Butler in. What if we used Judith Butler as as the villain? What if they were the villain in a James Bond film and had a gender laser? What would that do? to the politics of Bond, or what does it mean? One of our most recent pieces um, was called Contradict This, a birthday funeral for heroes, which is if you're asking like, what would be resonant that people that you'd want to bring to people to? I think that piece is one of the ones I'm most proud of. The goal in that was to create a cast and a team that was as diverse and multitudinous as Whitman said he was, and then to throw Whitman a birthday party that turned into a trial of Whitman um, and then a sort of funeral around the questions, what do we do with our problematic heroes? You know, do we cancel Erica Badu and Joni Mitchell? Do we, you know, what do we do? So it started with Walt Whitman. We were commissioned to make a birthday party for Walt Whitman. And then it devolved, I would say evolved into a trial with a huge cancel button. And we canceled the audience and we canceled ourselves. That's one of the resonant pieces. But in general, I would just say the beautiful thing about the Bearded Ladies Cabaret and the gift for me has been the community that has built around the work. The amazing wealth, the abundance of creativity in the queer cabaret performance art drag nightlife scene in Philadelphia and beyond. The production that we saw, Thweeney Todd, uh, was created by Eric Jaffe and Lily St. Queer, who are amazing artists in Philadelphia. Eric Jaffe, they're one of our hosts on the Beardmobile and in Late Night Snacks. So there's all these like beautiful intersecting communities. And as I live into the Bearded Ladies work more and more, my family gets larger. So that's the thing that I would say is come to Philly, see some amazing cabaret performers or have us over, invite us over to your town, um, whether it's one of our little cabot plays or if it's if it's just to come host a cabaret where we get to kind of mix and mingle with a local community of queer performers, that's what we really love doing. How do you, I, I want to get inside your head a little bit more about curation. You mentioned that earlier. Can you talk, expand a bit about curation for cabarets and just cabaret is a uniquely, in my mind, it's a uniquely queer art form or that's where it has the most resonance for me personally. As a, as a queer art form? Yeah. Yeah. Can you give me your definition of cabaret? Like, I'm so I'm so curious as to how how you define it. I would say so. I'm a big. F do you have you heard of the uh, 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 descriptor rhizomatic? No. 
Cool. So if you're thinking about a tree, like a tree has like a linear growth, right? Like you plant a seed, seed becomes a sprout, becomes a straight thing that goes in, you know, that is how most folks are, you know, holistic or neurotypical folks process thought. And when I think about queer thought and, and neurodiverse thought, I think more about rhizomatic thought, which is like mushrooms, right? And oh, so fungal systems. Yeah. Right. Like these things that sometimes connect for, I don't want to say miles because that might not be accurate, but instead of thinking about success as a ladder thinking about it as a lattice work and so we're empowered to think that there's not only one way to ascend right mm. like we can go sideways and so to me cabaret is really relishing in rhizomatic musical expression that intersects with something deeply personal to a performer or performers mm. i i love it i mean i would never expect this but normally i get life as a cabaret <laughs> but uh yeah i'm that is beautiful and and i agree i did not identify as a bearded lady when i created a company called the bearded ladies 12 years ago and now i mean right now i'm more like a stubbly lady but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was nominative determinism. Some part of me knew before I knew. I wanted to jump on this before with talking about Psycho and Norman Bates. For me, it was uh, the character of Anybody's in West Side Story. Yes. And, and just... I was six or seven years old and at my grandmother's, you know, in a wingback chair, you know, the little TV, that's all I wanted to do unless we were, you know, cooking or whatever. I like just watched this VHS of West Side Story. I was way too young to be watching it. I was like, I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder why. I had this pair of scissors, trans flag colors. It was a pink cat and a blue cat. And one time, which is very like a thing that kids do, but like cut my hair. Like, and I was like, oh, Again, my body knew before the brain did. I haven't seen the new adaptation yet, but to see this possibly queer or non-binary or gender expansive coded character portrayed in such a way in 2022, 2021, it's just very cool. So I just wanted to say that my Norman Bates was anybody's. Yours is much more family friendly, but I love I, I, I love that. And isn't it interesting where we fill what Tupperwares were given, you know, we, we fill, we fill the, the spaces that we're given, however problematic or strange they are, and they become part of us. I'm working on a production of Hedwig right now. I don't normally direct things that are written already, but I love Hedwig. I'm thinking about Exquisite Corpse, which is one of the last numbers and, and how we are a bit of an exquisite corpse. So many people have written on us or we've we've tattooed ourselves with so many people. We are scarred in so many ways. I'm really moved by by that story. So thank you for sharing that. And this 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 fungal network, which is cabaret, which gives me a new lens for this. I think a lot about this form. As I say, for me, I was I was using it to process a lot. I didn't even call myself a drag artist to start. I was like, I'm an actor. I'm an actor, and I'm the character happens to be a woman, happens to be a dead French singer. The character happens to be Marlena Dietrich, a dead French singer who's really queer, or a dead German singer who's who's really queer. They were like, was Edith Piaf to Marlena Dietrich, and I'm like, come on, this is pretty textbook. And I, I, it was, it took me a really long time to start performing Piaf, for example, who was maybe my most performed character with a beard and just being a bearded Piaf. And that was a big step. And then to start using she and he pronouns, I was using he pronouns. And then to be like, actually, I like it better. When, can we just, can we just land? I think that's who I am. That's me. And, and to do it consciously. The interesting thing about cabaret and, and my, my thoughts about queerness I think there there could be an argument that cabaret was a queer form from the beginning, depending on your use of the word queer. In 1880s Paris, when or Montmartre, when it was starting, it was taking class. It was like 
after a revolution, after everyone had lost, got into a bar with a bunch of artists and made fun of the winners. You know, like that's what it was. That's what it was. And it was turning class on its head. It was what we would now say maybe queering class. And there was a horrible seat in the original Chat Noir. They would put the wealthy people there. They called it like the governor's seat or something like that. And it had horrible sight lines, but they made it special. So it was it was always a form that was about naughtiness and always about belonging together and being in a room and taking the, I think initially the class conflict and the war and taking some of that tension and instead of using weapons was about using words using language, poetry, and also taking genres and mixing them together. And I think it became more queer in our current sense when the kind of STD that is cabaret spread to Berlin um, in the early part of the 20th century. And then obviously in the Weimar era, then you like have Clara Waldorf, who's like this amazing lesbian <laughs> German singer who would only do three songs. She would come into a bar, she would do three songs and she was very short. And apparently she stood very still and moved her hands in this like very, <laughs> this very rigid way, bright red hair um, and would come into bars big and small, performance venues big and small and sing just three songs and leave. She has a song called Chuck All the Men Out of the Reichstag, which I sing nowadays as Chuck All the Men Out of the White House. Men are the problem with humanity. They're blinded by their vanity. It's always about fighting back a little bit when the Nazis were coming into power and when they were struggling with the cabaret and they tried to take away the MC, they got rid of the MC. They were like, you can do cabaret, but you can't have an MC. And it just didn't work because it's the MC that is like, I read the news today. It's the MC that is digging in and whatever is happening on stage, the, the amazing thing about good cabaret hosting and good cabaret, and when I think about curation, to get back to your question, I really love it when it's like oil and water, <laughs> when you have very different forms and identities and genres happening on the same stage, sharing the same space, and what it means to curate and host that. And also what, what that means for your audience too. How can you bring, how can you bring moms together with, with a bunch of queerdo trans folks? I know there are many intersections of those communities, but how can you bring an opera audience together with a drag audience? And a lot of that is about putting work on stage that those audiences want to see and then hosting both of those communities. That was a lot of answers to a lot of your questions, I think. I, I like rhizomatic questions as well. I guess the, the last question I have for you, and we'll see where this one leads. If you had to put together this awesome box that's sort of like a, a how-to kit in terms of how to cultivate queer performance, what are the aspects that folks need to lean into who maybe want, I mean, we talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, or sometimes this Jedi and justice is there too. I'm really heartened by the expansion of that work and the intention behind expanding that work within the larger theatrical community. And yet sometimes I feel there's a, there's definitely a disconnect between that intention and then actually seeing LGBTQIA voices brought to the table in meaningful ways. Mm. And I feel that's one of your superpowers. So can you share some insight into how folks can do that well? I think it always helps to articulate your values, literally write them down together and talk about them. That's one of the, the tools that I use as a maker, as a curator in all of the processes that I undergo is to say like, what are our values? What are we aiming for? And let's 
actually use this as a tool throughout this process. When we get into a hard moment, let's say, okay, this is not working because there's not enough glitter involved and it's not eco glitter, you know, the, the, because glitter was one of our values. See it on the board? Um, you, you know, we're not living into our glitter value. I think that in partnerships, when you're dating, you know, I, I often think about the beards sleep around a ton. We are just, we're very polyamorous, I would say, as an organization. We have many relationships going on of different, you know, like of different kinds. And uh, and I, I think, first of all, feel free to date. Don't feel like you need to go steady right away. Take the time to, to get to know someone, go see their performance, talk to them, say, hey, won't you join me? We'd love for you to share a little something on this if you're willing. And then once you get to know each other and you've, because articulating your values is one thing, living into your values is another thing. So then, then you've got your values, then you start practicing a little bit with someone. And then once you have a relationship, an actual relationship where you can ask a hard question or have a hard conversation, then I think you may be in, in more of a position to actively and meaningfully support someone's work as a lead artist pay people well, have a clear, transparent, equitable pay model. Um, so when the beards do work, we will share, hey, everyone's being paid at this rate, or here's our pay model. If this works for you, let us know. We also understand that some people have different relationships to fees or um, expectations around this. So let's have a conversation. But it's your responsibility as a producer to, to give the information so that someone can make an active decision. It's exactly like the consent model that we're talking about with the pearls. It's like, give us the tools, give us the language we need to know so that we can decide whether to step forward into something with you or not. That feels important for queer producers who I think oftentimes we can, because we're part of the queer community, we're, we're like, oh, we're, we have sameness, like we have sharedness. And I'm like, no, we have a lot of drama. <laughs> we have a lot of drama and we have a lot of trauma too that we haven't taken care of. And so we have to be extra careful and extra generous with our community. And we need to take care of ourselves, uh, pay ourselves, pay other people well. The other thing I use often is safe words. I create like a little safe word for a project. I think I learned this from a wonderful artist in Philly named Epchez. It's a kind of quicker tradition of having like an ouch word. I always create them with a group. So I've had Mariah Carey be a safe word before. <laughs> Founding fathers is one of the safe words that's happening for, for uh, me in a process right now. If anything goes wrong, everyone's like, this is a founding father's moment. But just creating vocabulary where you can explicitly talk about harm that may happen in a room and pausing and building that into the process. And I think for non-queer producers, I think really asking yourself, like, are you in a relationship? Are you actively in a relationship with your queer community? If you're not, maybe go see some of the work meet people. I'm in many projects right now, and I'm in a certain situation right now where there are cis producers on a very trans-led process. And it's like, maybe, maybe you need a trans producer on this or someone present in the room that is in charge of negotiating between the team and the cis values of the producer. Resource yourself for that. And if you don't have the resources, I mean, A, be creative, because I feel like you can do equitable work on any level. Um, if you have good agreements and you talk with one another, I started the beards by just feeding people. I fed people. I didn't have enough money to pay people well. And so I just, I made lots of soup and I'm acknowledging that I'm coming from a certain place of privilege to be able to do that as well. I want to say that as a, as a white person, I think take time to ask if you're actually in relationship. And if you're not, then maybe like baby step it, maybe baby step, maybe don't. I, the hard thing is like, I want, I want you to program the queer work. Like I want you to program that queer work and I will undergo, unfortunately, I will go undergo a lot of like bad producing to like get my work seen. So don't not produce queer work, but just hire people to help you produce it. <laughs> I'm curious about your answer to this though, would say. 
Oh gosh, I have a lot of. I leaned. I'm noticing my body. I leaned way away from the microphone at that point. <laughs> yeah. I, the most meaningful experience I've had was putting together my MFA thesis project. I wouldn't say I'm a playwright necessarily, but I collaborated with Ayla Sullivan, who just graduated. They just graduated from Columbia with their MFA in playwriting, and they're incredible. And so I co-wrote this piece called Transactions with Them. I directed it. We had co-written it. It was a play that brought in interviews and pieces from trans people in the in the theater industry mm. and it was I mean it was sort of a hybrid of a docu play and a cabaret in a way the way it was set up is it was I feel a lot of times when theater gets produced there's like there's like the one queer role right like there's like we got one we got one I have lots of thoughts on that that are are too multitudinous to be contained to the end of a podcast the reason that I'm saying this is I've never been in a space like that and I got to lead mm. that space I know this is an audio medium, but my um <laughs> my emotional support animal is is climbing up on me because he can tell that I'm getting a little emotional right now. Um, so if you hear his his collar, that's what's going on. It's just we need we need more spaces like that. You just need to trust us. The Catamounts in Boulder, Colorado, they gave us their um, 501c3 to be the fiscal sponsor. I was able to pay everyone well. It was for a theater festival. We sold out the smallest venue. And so we got to be in the largest venue in the space. We were able to raise about $700 in ticket sales for Trans Lifeline. We were able to have the local trans choir open the piece. And it was this beautiful thing because there were theater people who were there to be there as a theater person. And then there were queer people and trans people who were there saying, this is something made. For me, I guess my answer to what you're saying is that there's so much gatekeeping that happens. Mm -hmm. Cis producers are not monolith. There are some very nice cis producers who are doing very awesome work. But at the For end sure. of the day, it's really what you're saying. We can't have these experiences like the experience I have without people saying, yeah, like he here's the space. Here's Here are the resources. We trust you to be the best one to tell your own story. And we trust you when you say that you're going to fill the theater. And we're not going to worry about alienating an audience or subscribers by amplifying your voice. It's not enough to bring people to the table once a season. You have to, I love that dating metaphor. You have to keep cultivating that relationship. It just can't be a, a one and done pat on the back. Oh, look, our artist numbers are great in the spreadsheet for this grant that we're applying for now. I think the other, the other thing too is just like stop choosing stories that center on queer trauma. Like, mm. I mean, like find, find those stories. There are so many stories that are about queer joy yeah. and put money behind that. I think about Ada's podcast, which was the last one. You got to trust historically marginalized voices that they know what the F they're doing. And it's just no longer an excuse to say we would do it, but we can't find the people or they don't have the experience. That means you're not doing enough work. And if I hear that excuse one more time, I'm going to flip a table. Um, <laughs> so does that, I mean, does that I, live up to your expectations? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate it. I, I just want to like echo back that I think the emphasis on queer joy is pretty important. And I, I'm also reminded that when you think about building a team around a queer project, or giving resources and trusting a queer artist to build their team. It extends beyond what's seen on stage. Like it is yes. the beards, the beards often I'm working on a project and most of the people in the room are trans and, and it just feels incredible. And it changes how the work is created. It changes the energy in the room. And yeah, I just, I, I resonate with a lot of what 
with a lot of what you're sharing. I, I think about the word trust because I, I play both sides of this a bit. You know, I'm a, I'm a producer and I'm an artist that wants my work to be produced. Like I work, I do a ton for the Bearded Ladies and I'm also creating Rose on the side, you know? I understand that sometimes if an artist came to me as a producer and said like, I just need you to give me the money and trust me. I may have reservations about that as a producer, but I, what I've been trying to, I've been listening to a little Brene Brown, but think about like how I can break down trust into different categories and think, okay, what is what is the trust I have? What is the kind of trust that I like that I need right now so that I don't bother this artist or so that I don't put a burden on them? And, and how can I, can, how can we have an explicit conversation around the values and what kind of trust we want to cultivate? Because trust is something that happens slowly over time, which is why I'm like date for a little bit, you know, like date for a little bit, either date for a little bit or just give the artist the money in the space and whatever they ask for, you know, um, within a sandbox, like be clear about your boundaries uh, or both do both. I try to think too, I'm always trying to look at the other sides of, of things. And I'm like, well, what does it mean for you to think more critically about what trust you have or don't have? Like, what are you worried about? You're probably worried about alienating your subscribers. And actually, aren't, isn't your new mission where you talk about equity and inclusion about welcoming new people? And that will, like, how many times I've had to have a conversation with people about changing their bathrooms. I'm working with Cardinal Sage right now in, in Bloomington, Indiana, doing this production of Hedwig, which is, we have a brilliant non-binary Hedwig. And the team is so great. And it's a, it's a cis producer. And she's she's lovely. She's like, yeah, we're going to X out the gender sides of the bathrooms. Like it's a construction site. And we're like, it's creatively engaging with the prompt. And how many times do I work with producers or presenters where I just have to do all the labor of, of kind of talking them through what it will be to make their space on the base level? Like bathrooms are the base level and I'm sick of talking about them. Like, but but it's the base level uh, inclusive. That's like our green M&M. &M. Um, <laughs> and, it's, and it's not even a green M&M. &M. It's like the real, you know, like it's actually a space right. of trauma. Like we need the bathroom, but but it is like, a, it's like, what do I look at when I see a space? So I, I feel you on a lot of that. And I also am reflecting as we have this conversation as I, as a white producer that works with a really like multiracial group of artists, like what are the ways in which I, I'm always like, as I engage in this conversation, thinking about the conversations and, and what would it be like to be part of a different marginalized community, historically marginalized community, or to have intersections of these marginalizations and how can we as producers and makers, I think, just dig deeper. And I, I loved what you said about just like fucking trust, <laughs> trust, trust the artists. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you too, but not for much longer because yeah. we've, we've come to the end of our time together. This is an on the spot request. Would you humor me and take us out with a bit of singing i don't care what it is but i just would love to end on a, a resonant note of queer joy to end this oh, delightful time with you i would love to this is a round do we want to do it as a round okay i'll teach it for you first so we're gonna we'll, we'll sing it we'll sing it together dear friends queer friends let me tell you how i am feeling we'll do that a little bit dear, dear friends queer friends. friends zoom is horrible at singing together or rounds i forgot <laughs> I'm enjoying my time so much with you that I uh, that I forgot that we were on Zoom. Okay, let's let's just do it back and forth one more time. Dear friends, queer friends, let me tell you how I am feeling. Dear friends, queer friends, let me tell you how I'm feeling. You have given me such pleasure. You have given me such pleasure. I love you so. I love you so. 
I love you so. I love you so. Oh, it's so lovely to hear your voice in all the ways. Thank you for that. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much, John, for spending this time with us. I do. I love you so. I love you too. It's lovely to like share space and community with you. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This podcast is co-produced and engineered by Ray Catherine Morgan and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.